Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the forts. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. <laughs> then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house and into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of, your, of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him and they captured the city then they devoted all in the city to destruction both men and women young and old oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword 
But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought, out, brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her, <clears throat> and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This is God's word. All right. Thanks, Vi. I could uh, see the terror in your eyes when you realized you were going to have to yell um, all of that out. And uh, John, I just, I don't mean to keep bringing this stuff up, but, you know, Leviticus 17 talks about how the life is in the blood, and I'm sure you've eaten some rare meat, and technically that falls under, you know, murder somewhere in there. So, I, I, you know, yeah, we can, we'll talk about this later. You probably eat a lot of chicken, I'm sure, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, now that I got that out of the way, uh, a brief prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So this is one of those tales of adventure from the Bible um, that, that Vi just read to us, you know, Rahab and the spies and the young girls and boys here in Sunday school, and you get to see the coloring page, which we're going to put on the screen or, or something like it. Um, you know, see it? There it is. Yeah. See that little cursor? There it is. Um, yeah. Oh, cool. See? Rahab is like um, definitely a Pokemon character in this uh, scene. And, uh, and you learn things such as, you know, how to recognize a good spy or how to hide a spy in your house or um, when to be honest with government officials. And if it's a really good lesson, you learn to be brave or to listen to God and, and that things will go well. And I, I don't disagree um, with any of those applications per se. But I think there's a lot more to this story that needs to be drawn out. And our series that we're going through to uh, begin this year is on trust, uh, trusting God and what that looks like. And here uh, we have Rahab, who is a huge example of what it means to trust God in the scriptures. So we want to unpack who she was, um, who she is in our estimation now, and what, what changed, what led that to happen. Who she was, who she is, and what changed. So I know we read the, uh, the story to open up here, but I want to I set the scene a little bit because we're just picking up stories out of the Old Testament. So this is from the book of Joshua. Joshua chronicles a major period of transition when Israel, um, who was named after Jacob, the, the cheat, the deceiver, um, whose name is then changed to Israel after he wrestles with God, they're named after him, and they've been delivered from slavery under Moses, who John talked about last week. Moses leads them um, through, through a, dramatic, a dramatic scene that is clearly orchestrated by God, not just Moses. Moses is a great leader, but they are delivered with plagues and supernatural events that can only be attributed to God himself. They experience that, but it didn't transform them entirely because they quickly begin to grumble and they turn to other gods out of their dissatisfaction with their situation 
in the desert. So even Moses, their great leader, um, can't change them, can't transform them, and he is a deeply flawed man, as, Mo- as uh, John spelled out for us on Sunday. So he's so flawed that he's unworthy to enter the land they were promised to inhabit um, when they were delivered from slavery. But God has mercy on him and is with him in his death, but he is not worthy of the full deliverance. Moses had a young leader under him who now takes over at the helm. His name is Joshua, and he's finished uh, or finishing the, the work that Moses had begun and leading Israel into Canaan, where they were promised that they would be, um, would be their kind of forever home. But to do that, they have to face the people of that land, the Canaanites. So who are the Canaanites? Who's that? Uh, Canaanite is kind of a catch-all phrase uh, historically for a bunch of tribes and nomads that lived in the region. They were all kind of called Canaanites. And truly, these folks were not that different uh, from Israel. In fact, if you trace it back, they have common ancestry. They were kind of distant cousins. And that explains something because it means that these people were like Israel and that they had the same origin stories. But it also explains the the judgment that's to come upon them because it's not just that they didn't know who God was. They, in fact, had the same origin stories, knew who God was, but had chosen not to serve God. They had actively rejected God at some point in their history. So they may have had ancestors who rebelled um, at worst or or were at least disinterested in the God of the Israelites. And I, and I think there's some parallels in a way um, to, to our context here that I just sort of want to draw out. So Tucson is called a post-Christian city. Um, and what that means, what people mean by post-Christian is it means that in some parts of the country today, you might grow up having heard the biblical stories and assumed biblical premises. But um, after a couple generations, if that hasn't been a part of your story, you grow up without those assumptions built in. So our, our friend who painted our mural out here, I remember talking to him, and I asked him if he had any church background, and he, had, and he said, nothing. Like he, and I said, did you ever learn stories from the Bible? Nothing. He had never heard any of it in his life as a 40-year-old guy. Just absolutely, he, He's like, I know churches are out there, but it's never been a part of my life. Never heard any of it. Never been taught any of it. Never grew up with any of it. And that is post-Christian. That's what that means. And so in a sense, and he, he actually um, had said that in his family, there were religious people back in, the, back in the day, but that had not been passed down to him by the previous generations. So there's a lot of similarity there. That's the Canaanites in a way. These are people who grew up under the same stories, under the same influences, but with time, those had faded out. They'd either been rejected or they just moved on from them, and they were living out of a different reality, even though they were aware that that reality existed. So they weren't just unbelievers, they were descendants of those who walked away at some point from the faith, which would lead them to be more skeptical than somebody who'd never heard in the first place. They knew enough to know their people actively disagreed and had chosen not to worship this God. And we see evidence of this even within the story that Vi read to us because Rahab, when she encounters these spies, speaks of the Lord and the way that the Lord had delivered them. They'd heard the stories, but she not only refers, she's not using the name for another deity, another God. She actually uses the personal name for God, which is Yahweh, which we're going to put a little uh, definition of that up there. 
um, which, is, which is this deeply um, important name in the scriptures, the God who is, I am, I am that I am, God said when he declared his name. And Rahab knows that name. When you read in your English Bible, the Lord with all capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's when the, that name, Yahweh, is being used, and that's the, the signal for it in English. And that's what Rahab says when she is speaking of this God who had delivered them. So she knows a lot, in a way, about Israel's God. She, she knows the, the name, the weighty, profound name of God when she describes it. So she didn't just say, we heard your God is, is amazing. She says, we heard that the God, Yahweh, has given you this land, has delivered you from these other kings, and so on. So Rahab is a Canaanite. She lives in Jericho, a city that still exists. We'll show it to you on Google Maps up here. Um, so Jericho is still around. Um, so you see it right above the sea, just to the right of Jerusalem on our big map there. And you, and you see the Jordan River going up. And so the Israelites are coming over into Canaan, which is on the left. They have to cross the Jordan River. And the first city that, they, that you would encounter today and that you would encounter back then was Jericho. Um, Jericho is extremely old. Um, we actually have the oldest image of a living person. Um, it has come from ex excavations of Jericho. There it is. That's the oldest image of a human being um, has come from excavating this, this ancient city. And this city was fortified with walls, according to all historians. So it was a gateway city, a fortress city, and it was a very, very ancient city. Um, it was the first city any kind of nomadic tribe would encounter after crossing the Jordan River. Um, and it was probably named after this a god of the Canaanites that, that was um, associated with the moon and was worshipped in this region. So this, this city had actively adopted a, a pagan god that was uh, connected to worship of the moon. And Rahab lived in, a wall, in the wall... She had a dwelling place in the wall with her family, and the scripture says she was a prostitute. Um, old Hebrew rabbinical tradition says she was an innkeeper, and that can seem like they were trying to kind of gloss things over, but the truth is she was probably both. Because from, from the evidence we have historically, prostitution often was tied in with the religious practice of these ancient civilizations, and it was not necessarily what we would think of it as today, like a money-making endeavor. So if you, had, um, if you were a wealthy family and you owned property within the stone wall um, and you were a very big part of the religious system, you might, have, you might house people, but also your daughters might participate in religious rituals around sexuality that would include what an Israelite person would describe as prostitution, Okay. Israel's worship demanded that you renounce adultery and not revel in it, but the Canaanite religion would have actually offered sexual expression as part of their religious practice. So, it's important to say Rahab may not have been this lurking, ashamed, or flamboyant prostitute the way our modern mind might think. She actually may have been very religious. She may have been doing even part of what, in the view of her people, was good which makes her actions here more incredible, not less, because she does not just say, because we tend to think of it as moderns, we think, oh, she's a poor 
lowly prostitute. Here come these spies from a big, strong nation, and she gets saved by them. But truthfully, she might have been a very influential person who made a really critical decision to worship one God over another. And that's a very different thing. We only have so much information, but we do know that she was fairly wealthy, that she was advocating on behalf of her entire family, um, that she was, yeah, able to influence and even resist the king of her city and live for some time. Uh, she may not have been the poor prostitute. Uh, my, my store that I own, I just saw an order popped up on my email this week as I was preparing for this that we bought product from Rahab's Rope. And I thought, what is going on here? And it's a company that helps with child prostitution. And so our general, our, our general idea about Rahab is that she was kind of a poor child. Truthfully, she probably wasn't. Um, now, I would assume that even, that no matter what, no matter if, if her society praised this behavior or not, that it was damaging to her. I would never say it wasn't. But I am saying, I'm not sure she was like the, on the lower end of the ladder. Um, she's looking out for her family. She was viewed as religious, and she knew who the God of Israel was. That's a very interesting thing to think about, right? Like she has this knowledge of the God of Israel, and she has heard what God has done. So I want to I flash forward now into who we view her as today, and then I want to get back into what happened. Um, today... Rahab is remembered very, very well. Um, she's actually, in, in many traditions, a saint. We're going to have images of that up here. Um, and so these are icons of Rahab. Um, and here in Joshua, she really is a key figure of the story. And she is not an incidental figure. In fact, she is the key figure. And that, that says something. The story ends on the fact that she still lived among them when this was written. She is like a local hero in their context. So she has gone from being you know, a, a foreign prostitute to being a local hero at the least. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament essentially lays out the history of the Jewish people and makes an argument that grace and faith were always key elements to being the people of God. And that book describes Rahab as well. It explains this whole era of history. And, and notice this, it doesn't even mention Joshua in the book of Hebrews at all. The powerful leader, but it does mention Rahab. Here it is, Hebrews eleven twenty nine to 31. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. This is back under Moses. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had, been, she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. When the writer of Hebrews, who's painting this picture about the, the entire Jewish history and what was most important within it, that grace and faith were key elements to being part of the people of God. And he talks about the exemplars of Christian faith all the way back to Abraham. He doesn't even mention Joshua, the military commander, but he mentions Rahab. Um, it's almost as if the people of God um, who cease to trust him find their exemplar in Rahab, who is named and elevated after she returns to faith. And that's pretty incredible. Now, 
Not only is that a fact, but God brings grace to God's people through Rahab as well. Um, In the very beginning of our New Testament, when you read Matthew's gospel, the story of Jesus being shared to a Jewish audience, and Matthew starts this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is tracing Jesus back through this lineage that the book of Hebrews describes. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So Rahab ends up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She's the great, 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 great grandma. So she's remembered well in our minds. She's a woman of faith. She's an exemplar of faith in the book of Hebrews. She's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She enters into God's people from the outside, from post-religious skepticism, you could say, she goes from knowing who, knowing the name of God to being a member of the community of grace. She becomes one of the saints. Um, now, we don't believe that you know, saints intercede for us in a unique way, but we do believe that all of us you know, represent God to one another, and Rahab gets included in that list of saints. She represents God to us from ancient history. She became one of God's people. And that's an incredible change. I mean, this, I'm telling you, to be featured in Hebrews more than Joshua is a big deal, okay? So Rahab is remembered very, very well. So what changed? How'd that happen? As I said, she goes from being formerly connected to God's people, someone who knows God's name, to being one of God's people. She goes from hearing the ways God had delivered his people to regularly bringing her own sacrifices into God's tabernacle, handing them to priests, experiencing that her sins, her prostitution, her idolatry, which is probably what the prostitution was all about, her selfishness, her anger, her covetousness, her lies were washed away because an innocent lamb was slain on her behalf. She goes from being outside to inside to being cleansed of her sins. She goes from having herself cleansed in the temple to being married to a man named Salmon, not Salmon, Salmon, okay, and with whom she raises a son who is shaped by grace. We know about him because of the book of Ruth. Her son Boaz redeems and receives another foreign woman named Ruth. And he was probably very likely to do that because he knew that God had written his story with a similar signature, that his mother had been brought in from the outside, and so he receives an outsider into his own life, and he pays a great price to receive her. So grace came to his mother, Rahab, through though she was an outsider, how could he withhold grace and not include an outsider named Ruth, who had no one to look after her? And through that family would come Jesus, God's son, who John the Baptist would call the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of of the world. Why did that happen to Rahab? What caused the change? Well, to some degree, the story came to her, right? She was just doing her thing. She was just 
you know, we don't know anything about her. She's in Jericho. She lives in a wall. She's part of the, the religious cult. She worships the moon. She lives in the wall. She has flax. She's got a rope. These are, that's about all we know, right, about her. And then these spies come to her inn. Probably, they, they probably chose it strategically. Uh, foreigners are expected to stay in inns or, or to stay with prostitutes. It's probably the easiest way to get into the city and hear what was going on and not be you know, questioned would be to enter into a place like this. But these spies come to her. She doubtfully was out looking for them. So in a sense, in the story, God found her. It's a work of God. It was mercy of God to find her and reveal himself to her. But that's, that's not all there was. She wanted to be a part of God's people. She took a leap of faith. She believed. And then she did some pretty important work. She wasn't passive in this. God found her, but she also acted. Um, Sometimes I hear, and and I've thought many times, I think, in my life, I think about how God is the initiator of faith in our lives, and I think, well, God's going to have to work on me to change me, or God's going to have to work in so-and-so's life to change them. And that may be true, but the story of Rahab shows us that though while that may be true, the desires of our hearts, the things that we want, and the work that we do is all tied up within that. And all of those elements need to be present at the same time. Let's look at the story again. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, "'Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land.'" But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Not true. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly and you will overtake them. She lied. Okay, I'm just going to throw that out there. Big fat lie, right? But she had brought them up to the roof. Uh, and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, there's that name Yahweh, the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. See, notice she is part of the communal conversation. She's no outcast. All the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She knows a lot. Now then, please... Swear to me, swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So Rahab saw the grace that God had for others. We've discussed, we've, we've talked about Moses, we've talked about some of this stuff throughout the year. And we have said the people of Israel, did they deserve to be enslaved No one should be enslaved, but were they more righteous than the Egyptians? They were not. They are not better than the Egyptians. They go on to prove it immediately in the wilderness. But they are delivered out of Egypt, which is a gift, which is God 
and his mercy and his kindness and his love that's set upon them, and God delivers them miraculously. So these people who were enslaved in Egypt are delivered, and that is grace. That is mercy. And then they get into the the desert, and they immediately begin to complain. They complain about everything. When God provides bread for them, like miraculous bread, they don't like the bread, you know? When God gives them meat, they want better meat. They don't like anything that they're given. And, and it, it sounds like a really rough time out there. It does. I, I'm not saying I want to go live in a desert. I do live in one. But I don't want to live outside, right? Um, but but, but they, they're complaining. They're showing they're, they're no better. These aren't righteous people. These are people that if, if it weren't for mercy, they wouldn't exist. And then God recovenants with their children and brings them across another river on dry land, by the way. It's like a whole nother deliverance as they enter into Canaan and brings them across the Jordan. And Rahab sees that God has redeemed all these undeserving people by his own power. And she says, I want that. I want in. I want my whole family in. And she says, swear to me, swear you'll deal kindly with us. And what is, what is the response? Let's say, what's the response of the spies? They say, okay. What is God's response through his people to her? The answer is yes. She says, I want in. God says, yes. It reminds me of Jesus seeing, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. you want, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be changed? Ask. Ask God. God wants to give you these things. He's not like the terrible father, the Bible says, that, that if you ask for something good, he'll give you something bad. If you ask for something good, he wants to give to you. He is good. She wanted in. She took a leap of faith. She says, swear to me, I, I believe, I want, I want in. And then she worked. She deceives the king of fortified Jericho. If you think about this ancient time, and I, I mentioned to you that the Canaanite region was, there's a bunch of nomadic tribes. If you're in the city that has the giant walls, which all historians say it did, this is a big deal. Like you're in one of the more powerful fortified cities and you are standing up to this king and you're lying to them. And I know that's a, a slight moral dilemma, but I'm just gonna say that if in case you needed to know, if some child is being pursued by a murderer and they run into the room, don't tell the murderer where they are. It's okay to say, I have no idea, okay? Like the, 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 the terrible thing can be, you can lie to prevent something awful, okay? You heard it here. Um, you know, to prevent a grave evil, a, a small sin, you will be forgiven of it. And that's what she does. But, but she does this in the face of a powerful king who could, who could demand her life, right? I mean, she is putting her life on the line. And she wants in to the people of grace. She risked her life to get in and... She makes a choice to get out of something. She's in, the, in this moment, she's switching allegiance from her king and her religion to a new king and a new religion. She could not continue to be a, a Canaanite who kind of helped God's people. 
She wants to be in the community and saved by God's grace, and therefore she's going to have to switch allegiance out of the moon worship, out of the where sex is part of her worship, into a new way of doing things, for she's going to marry a man and live under God's law. This is a big change that she made, and she makes it. We see this spelled out in the Bible. She marries a man, she has a child, she changes her life entirely. She leaves a legacy to us of a changed life, a changed allegiance. She wants not only that for herself, but she wants her family to do it too. Do you notice that? She's pleading for her, for her family, for her mother, her father, her brothers, for those she loves. This is a major deal. This is her, not only does she say, I acknowledge this God of yours exists, and I know his name, but she begins to make moves that show that she trusts in this God more than the gods that she has been worshiping. That she believes that this God can save her and would be a better God to worship than the entire way, like, than the whole system that her society is following after. It's God's, it's way of doing things. She transfers her entire life and action over to the God of Israel. So, just a little illustration here. This is as old as they get. If you've seen it, forgive me. If you haven't, you're welcome. So, faith, trust, what is it? Um, if I look at this stool, right, and I say, looks sturdy, I think it would work. I think this is a doable stool. I think I could sit on it, right? I, I would say, it is a stool. It's made for sitting. Okay, That's, that would be like acknowledging God. That would be like saying, I believe there must be a God. There probably is a God. But faith takes an extra step and puts its weight, and watch, this stool is going to collapse, right? <laughs> this will be the day. But, but faith puts its weight into that thing that you believe in and says, I will put my life on it. I will put my weight into it. I will actually utilize it. I will weigh myself onto it and let it hold my weight. This is what is happening with Rahab, where she doesn't just say, I think this God exists. She says, I'm going to put my life onto this God and trust him. I'm going to put my life into this system and trust it. I'm going to ask to become a part of it. I'm going to put myself wholly into it. Faith throws its weight onto God. And the truth is, if you want to grow in your faith, you have to let God be the one who holds you. Because a profound thing happens. When, when you transfer your weight onto God, you begin to actually experience God and know God. It's one thing to acknowledge God's existence. It's another thing to experience that when I transfer my weight, he holds me. That when I transfer the weight of my heart and my soul, he can handle it, okay? We have old strategies, beliefs, and ways of being and we will struggle with those sometimes, but to grow in faith, we have to place our weight squarely on who God is, and that involves what can feel like deep risk, because there's always a transfer. Like, when I sit on this stool, I come off of the weight of my own legs, right? There's, I have to make that move. I have to transfer 
my trust, and that is risky. How much did Rahab risk in this story? Think about it. Her entire life. Like, what if she had been wrong? What if actually God wasn't going to deliver Jericho into the hands of Israel? She's done, right? She, this is, it's treason, it's betrayal. She, she's done. She risked her entire life and livelihood on the fact that this God would be faithful. And how did it go for her? Well, we remember her well, don't we? We remember her well. So, I have a question for you. Do you feel like your faith isn't getting any deeper? Do you feel stagnant in life? Do you feel like you don't know God very well? This might be a moment where you need to put more of your weight into who God is. Like, maybe God needs to move from being theoretical to you to being where you actually place your weight. And what, what do I mean by that? Like, when God says, here is how you should live, here's what you should give your life to, you might need to actually try it. Like, seek the Lord with all your heart to ask the question of, so what's that going to look like for me? What do I have to leave in order to practice that? What do I have to move away from to transfer my trust onto God? Those are hard questions, but those are the places where your faith can actually get stronger and you can actually experience who God is. Really, it's time to try and see. It's time to commit to it. It's time to do the work that faith enables. I think... It's very common in religious spaces that for some of us, maybe it's something we tried a long time ago, but we haven't been trying it as much recently. And it's something to come back to and recommit to over and over. So Rahab worked. She hid the spies. She covered them with her, with her stalks of flax. She lowers them down the wall with a rope. She does what she is told to do exactly when she's told to do it. She pays attention to what they tell her to do. Her faith combines with action. And that is always the way that faith works out in the Bible. It is never just theoretical. It is always combined with action every time. It exhibits itself in trusting action. The New Testament book of James goes as far as to say that faith is dead without works. Now, when I... When I thought of this, I immediately thought of the old Monty Python skit about the bird. Have you seen this? The parrot. So the man goes into the store to buy a parrot. How do you know if you're buying a, a parrot? Parrots do a lot of things, right? They tend to squawk. They make a mess in their cage. They move around, right? So he goes in, and there's a parrot in the cage. and looks very still, and he's interested in the parrot. And the guy wants to sell him the, the parrot. And he's like, I think that parrot is dead. And the guy's like, no, it's not. You know, they got the British accents that I'm not very good at. No, it's not. And he goes, yes, it is. It doesn't move. And he's like, just being still right now. He's like, no, it's dead. It's most definitely dead. And the guy's like, it is not. And he gets it and he's holding his hand. He's knocking it on things. He's like, it's dead. It's a former parrot. It is not a parrot. This is a dead. This is not a parrot. And the guy's like, yes, it is. It's just sleeping. You know, and they're arguing back and forth. And anyway, I'm 
butchering it. Go, go watch on YouTube someday. It'll be great. Um, okay. Yeah, how do you know a parrot's dead, right? Doesn't move, doesn't do a thing. It's nice and cold. Um, in this case, it was probably not made of flesh. It was probably a piece of like wood with some feathers on it, you know? Um, okay, similar to faith. Um, so somebody says they have faith. Okay, thanks for letting me know. What do you do? What are you doing? Right? That's, that's kind of what the book of James is saying. Like, faith without works is dead. It's like the dead parrot. Like, you can, it's not really an intellectual claim. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not owning a Bible. It, when you transfer your trust onto who God is, and you really lean into him, that's going to evidence itself in your life. Like, that's just kind of basic stuff. The parrot is dead. It doesn't move. Your faith is dead. It's not doing anything. It's cold. Trust in God exhibits itself by action. And Rahab exemplifies exemplifies this. God finds Rahab. It all starts with God. God finds Rahab. It starts with grace. But she sees that God has given given grace to other unworthy people, and she wants to be included. She wants in, and she says, swear to me you're going to let me in. And she leaps into faith. She puts all her weight into it with no guarantees. She participates. It's a living faith. And we look back at her and we remember her as one of the most faithful people in God's story, even even more than Joshua. When Jesus um, was born of a woman, descended from Rahab and walked this earth, he talked about how God rewards those who earnestly seek after him. His disciples left everything to follow after him. It really is the same kind of story. And one day a woman came and argued with him that even the dogs that eat breadcrumbs under the table get food. And she would take whatever he would give to her. And he saw that and he said, now that is faith. That is great faith. She's fighting for it. She wants it. Faith or trust in God goes far beyond just being brave and obeying God. It goes beyond the color sheet, right? The coloring sheet, but it doesn't exclude any of those things. It is being brave. It is taking hold of what God offers to you, but it's doing it because you see that this God has been faithful to other people in the past and you put your faith and your trust completely in him. That's what enables you to have that kind of boldness and bravery and to place your trust upon God. Rahab was invited into a tabernacle to make sacrifices for her sin as one of God's people, and we are invited to partake of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the descendant of Rahab, came into the world as a better priest, as the perfect exemplar of trust in his father, as the perfect saint, faith living itself out in person. But he himself was torn down Kind of like that city Jericho, he was torn down in God's judgment, but because of his destruction, he's made a way that all of us might be saved. What do you do? Do you want it? Then take hold of it. Bring it to your family and friends. Ask God for more and lean into him with everything that you have. Jesus had a feast that remembered the Red Sea deliverance that Rahab had heard about. Think about that. That upper room, he's celebrating 
the deliverance at the Red Sea that Rahab had heard about. And Jesus said, this bread of the table, this bread that you feed upon, this bread that reminds you of the day I delivered you all from, from the Red Sea is me. It was always pointing to me. And I'm going to break so that you can be made whole. And he said, this cup of wine, which reminds you of the blood that was placed over the doorpost that Rahab would have heard about, that signaled that you were covered by God's grace, was always pointing to me. This is my blood of a new covenant for the forgiveness of many, that whoever will be covered over by me can live and can be included, can be part of God's people. It's no longer just a lamb that is shed for your sins. I am the lamb of God, here to take away the sins of the world. And therefore, our scarlet cord is Christ. He signals to God the Father that we are trusting in him. We have switched allegiances, that we have moved from darkness into light, and God will deliver all who are marked by him from the judgment that we deserve, deserve, even and especially in a post-Christian city like Jericho and Tucson, where people who once had heard of the name of God look again and say, I want back in. Rahab is a story that tells us that God loves to receive people back. So our invitation this evening is to come and receive him by faith, to take hold of him, to transfer our trust to him, to Recovenant ourselves to him. He's never left you. But maybe you need to lean back into him. And that's what this table is all about. I think we need to remember that about once a week, which is why we take the Lord's Supper every time. So I'm going to pray for us. Um, There's going to be two minutes of silence, and that's time for you to just speak with God, work these things out with God. If there's anything you need to confess to God, ask God for, to ask God to give you the courage to take hold of him, to lean into him by faith to help you. Um, We're going to take that silent time, and after that, we'll take the Lord's Supper as we sing. Um, One piece I'm going to put a little more emphasis into today is we always take giving in the back, and we are so, um, we struggle to say a whole lot about this. We really do. But this is a practice that Christians have kept since Abraham gave Melchizedek the priest a tenth of all that he had. And probably even before that, it's one of the most profound acts of worship. Why? Because it impacts what we trust in the most, our money. Um, It's a question of worship. What do we need the most? And so when done in a spirit of worship, giving declares everything I have belongs to God. And so I'm inviting us all to partake in that as well. And um, as we pray, consider who you want to ask God to save with you. Um, Following Rahab's example, not just about her, but who do you want to bring with you? So I'm going to pray for us and leave two minutes of silence for you. So Father, thank you for this this story. Um, Thank you that many of us learned it as kids um, with the coloring pages, and some of us, um, like Rahab, didn't grow up without it, or with, we didn't grow up with the story at all. Thank you that you've brought us all into the same space, the same room, 
to talk about your grace, to talk about faith together. I pray that you would work in each of our hearts. I pray that many of us like Rahab would put more of our weight into who you are and trust you deeply. I pray that we would invite others to come and be a part of your people. I pray that you would do that work in us because you are merciful and gracious and you love to bring people back into the fold. So as we pray, guide us, give us humble hearts, help us to lay everything we have at your feet and to trust in you. So guide us now as we pray.